HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working building in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Need a professional place to work from? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. Hey, this is Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager here at Heritage Radio Network. This year, we're celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary, and I want to thank all of our listeners and members for being a part of an incredible decade of food radio. We really would never have made it this far without all of you. So HRN is now in its summer fund drive, and this is when we turn to you and ask that you make a donation to help ensure a bright future for food radio. Whether you listen to one show or 20, there's a reason why you keep tuning in week after week. All of our content is powered by a small nonprofit, and we rely on your generosity to keep going. Help us keep broadcasting the most thought-provoking, entertaining, and educational conversations happening in the world of food and beverage. So become a member today. To celebrate our 10th anniversary, we have some brand new member gifts available online, so... I encourage you to snag your new favorite pizza-themed t-shirt or enamel pin today and show the world how much you love HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate so you can snag your 10th anniversary member swag. And thank you. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today is not just any ordinary day, nor any ordinary episode, because it is the 100th. Did you hear that dramatic pause? It is the 100th episode of Speaking Broadly, which means that I have interviewed over 100 extraordinary women I've heard their stories. They've made me cry, literally. You know, you can't tell because it's radio, but they've moved me. They've uplifted me, and I'm so, so grateful. I've learned about persistence, originality, believing in yourself, and so much more. So thank you all for for listening. I hope that if you haven't listened to all 100 episodes, you go back and uh, listen to some of them because these women are inspiring. Today... We're also going to be super inspired. I've picked a very, very special 100th episode guest. We're going to learn about fish and fakery and convincing people to believe in your potentially unpopular positions. My guest today is Jen Bushman of Root to Market, who's an expert in aquaculture and sustainability. 
Jen, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here, and congratulations on 100. Thank Amazing. you. I know. I, when you think about it, that's that's years. It takes. It's a. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. A lot of content and a lot of incredible people to have met. Exactly, and I, I feel like they all become part of my family. So my family is just so big now. I my family of origin is tiny, but my family of women uh, is so supportive and so big now. So I am fascinated by your story because we met over aquaculture, something that I initially was incredibly suspicious of. I think I'm probably, you know, um, one of many people that you've had to convince, but you did such a great job of it. (laughs) You you changed my mind between, you know, video and your passion, but I want to roll it back and talk about uh, your, the origin of your love for food and this community. And you've morphed quite a few times. Uh, and I want to talk about some of the the great, the highlight, the early highlights, and the changes along the way. So, how did you fall in love with food and just know that it was going to be it for you? I mean, I feel like I was surrounded by food by the incredible women that were in my life that all I feel like connected and helped raise me. My dad was in Vietnam when I was born. My mom was What was he doing in Vietnam? He was a he was a colonel in the Corps of Engineers. Wow. So he went to Colorado School of Mines. That was where he met my mom and my mom was literally a wide-eyed rancher girl whose family had had my great-great-great-grandparents had a 10,000-acre cattle ranch in Laird, Colorado, so the eastern side of the state, and they had a general store, and they grew everything and sold it all there. So it was, she was in charge of feeding the family, and then went off to Denver to go to x-ray technician school, like literally, (laughs) like the first one to ever sort of leave the family. And there's this sad but incredible story about my dad coming from Colorado School of Mines in Golden with a friend who'd gotten hurt and the nurses were there helping them and three of the nurses married three of the boys and so then she moved they ended up moving to Germany we should pop that's amazing yeah it was amazing (laughs) and they and but she like she was an explorer she just was ready to she always has been ready to support and tackle the world they went he went right into the army and, um, and he ended up in Germany, followed him to Germany, learned how to cook, explored farmer's markets. So she always, with the exception of the tuna casserole, which apparently <laughs> was not a big hit with dad, um, uh, was willing to just like take things on with him. And then when he went, was, when he was stationed in Vietnam, she came back home to his parents in Southern California and she was pregnant with me and it was my gram will say you know they pinned the it's a girl button on her in the (laughs) delivery room and all I know my whole life what I say is the lessons I learned were from these women in the kitchen that were cooking that I was sitting there with as this was my Jewish grandmother, so matzo ball soup and gefilte fish and brisket and just, you know, bagels, lox, and cream cheese on Sundays. In my first book, my grandfather's pancakes are in the cookbook, and they were, he would make them every single Saturday morning for all the people working. Um, he's a, he was an attorney, but he had workers that helped him on his apartment buildings, and they all came on the weekends. So even all the way through college, I was there, spent my summers there, was bought mitzvahed in Southern California and just had this, I just can't describe it as like, you know, anything other than these women that solved the world's problems while they were all cooking for the family. 
And that perfectly describes where you've landed, which is yes. solving the world's problems through um, fish and aquaculture. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> so you end up at some point in Reno. Right. And um, tell me about the Reno years. I mean, that was interesting because I've always felt like, and I think maybe it was from moving so much. By then, I had moved 14 times. The longest I'd ever lived anywhere was in Boulder, the four years I was at school. And by the time I got to Reno, I loved it. I mean, people will talk about there was no food scene. My first television producer said to me, you know, Jen, this is a macaroni and cheese audience and you should be making macaroni and cheese. And I said, then you don't know very much about your audience. They'll cook up to me. Wow. And that so became how did you end up on legacy. TV? Let's start there. I mean, I, I start, I, first of all, I was a communications major in college. So it was either going to be that or, or sewing on TV. You know what I mean? <laughs> or something. I still can't sew a button on to save my life. My mother actually says that that was one of her greatest like um, issues that uh, raising me was I did not learn how to sew. And the reason why was because I took home ec in junior high, knew more about cooking than the teacher and quit before I got to the sewing part because I drove her <laughs> crazy. Um, but no, Reno was, Reno for me, I, I had my son at an early age. I have a 27-year-old, so I was 24. I have this baby, and I needed to make a little bit of pin money. And so I started a cookie company. And, and it came from a friend sitting at the dinner table saying, these chocolate chip cookies are really good. You should sell them. So how it started hard, there. How hard was it to make and sell those? Oh my gosh, so hard. I mean, anybody who does that, I kept adding up quarters because you'd make like 25 cents a cookie, right? I mean, you know, you sold them for 50 cents. I There was a, a small cafe, a coffee house in downtown Reno on California Avenue called Cafe Royale. And what I did was I rented the kitchen from them and traded rent in cookies and then <laughs> sold them all over the city. But it was... It was a lot, let's face it. And, uh, and at that point, a lot of my son's friends were saying, how do you make this? How do you make that? And I said, well, come over and I'll teach you. And that's how cooking school began. That's right. That's where nothing to it began was that there were two incredible moments that really were like this, again, the pivots of life, right? And what this one was, was, you know, Jen, how do you do this? How do you do that? And then I would make something. They go, wow, you, it seems like, you know, there's nothing to it. And nothing to it became the name of the cooking school. So it started out in my home, then went to someone else's cooking store. It went to Andrea's Kitchen Conspiracy. That oh, was where the that's TV... A, that's a name. That's a name. Oh, trust me. She was this big, blonde, like you would expect, bright, amazing you know, woman. And she said, come on over. You'll sell a bunch of kitchen equipment. So before the days of like home place, before Sir Latab was doing the cooking classes, because we're talking about, I mean, this is in the early 90s. So it was a long time ago. And that very quickly started the media career. So there was a television, a local NBC affiliate. It just so happened it was owned by Jim Rogers um, and that team out of Vegas. And that very quickly became the radio show and the syndicated news inserts that were that were broadcast. They were 90-second interstitials that were broadcast all throughout um, the mountain states. Actually... Okay, that sounds amazing. You start with, you know, making some chocolate chip cookies, trading them for rent, and then you're syndicated. Um, what what was the, what made that happen? I mean, I feel like when you're in a small market, people, so what was interesting about being part of the food community and growing it into a national brand was that the expectation was that at that time, it only came out of New York. So if you looked at like who, Food Network had only just begun, 
and you look at where the talent was coming from, it was all within a few blocks radius of where their reach was. And I felt like, um, so that was part of the struggle was to say, I'm not making macaroni and cheese. The food is amazing. It's really, people are really responding to it. And it may not be sort of, you know, I, I used to say the New York food mafia. It may not be, you think, as impactful here, but but the middle of the United States is very powerful. And at the time, you know, basically saying it shouldn't be discounted. The other thing that was important was that, you know, when you have to go in and learn your own food styling and learn your own, um, write your recipes and, and navigate all of that, I mean, aside from really actually turning on the camera and learning how to run the camera, that's invaluable experience that wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gotten in producing all of this had I started right from the very beginning, say, on my own show. So it, it gave me all of the connective tissue to be successful at that. So you were super successful at that, and it looked like you're going to make it even bigger because it looked yeah. like you had the Food Network in your sights, which, even though it had just begun, was pretty powerful TV at the time. Um, what happened there? Well, it was interesting because um, what really the, the turning point, and you, know, you're, you try to be smart with your career. I mean, I always say, if you're not a good writer, have somebody that writes well for you that does things like submits you for speeches and submits you for awards. So um, I got really lucky early on getting nominated for some fairly significant awards. The television segments um, were nominated for a Viking Best segment. Wait, so how do you get people to promote you? I mean, to, to do that? <laughs> you do it by yourself. I mean, you literally, I like, I just made sure that whatever I was doing, we were submitting it for those awards. And so all of a sudden you've got, you know, the cooking school was nominated for ICP best cooking school of the year. Okay. Imagine like out of Reno, no one expected that. Um, the cooking teacher of the year twice. Um, and then the James Beard Awards, the nominations were for best segment on a non-new show. There was, I was nominated with Joey Altman and Steve Delinsky. Oh. Like the three guys, guys, you know, I know Arthur Schwartz um, with with the radio, my radio show. So what happened was it got a lot of attention um, and I produced three cookbooks under what we called the Kitchen Coach series. And we were in the midst of producing uh, a show. There was some interest from the founders of Scripps Howard who owned the DIY, which was the do-it-yourself network, fine living, and food network. And, um, and we worked really hard. I worked really hard at it. We knew that there needed to be, the television needed to be a platform to then build into books and build into endorsement contracts and everything else. And honestly, in my mind, it was a platform to really empower people to cook, one that I took very seriously. But then it didn't happen. And then it didn't happen. I mean, I, I, I feel like that was probably one of the most important life lessons was that you could be really, really good at something and it still not work out. So I had all of the tools, right? And I'd pound the pavement. I mean, made hundreds of appearances, was on the Today Show, was on Good Morning America, like all the stuff you needed to have. And it just, it didn't work. The Food Network um, shut down DIY. They shut down Fine Living at the time. I'm dating myself horribly here, but we were at Aspen Food and Wine together in those days at the festival. And um, And then Rachel Ray was coming up. And I was sitting in the same room with my agents from, from William Morris at the time. And it was, well, Pyrex is looking at you and they're looking at this woman from New York. And um, being here and being in the backyard of Food Network, Bob Tushman and the team, the, the team that was selecting content decided to pass. And how did that make you feel? I would say probably the darkest 
the darkest point of my life because the culinary center I'd at that point had a 6,000 square foot culinary center in Reno. It, we were teaching almost 600 home cooks, avocational students a month. There was a store, there was a cafe, but I'd been out, I think signing every single one of those books that I had sold, especially the first one that did pretty well. And so I was exhausted and I think I really was, to be honest, I was counting on this, bringing the return, the investors, my family. And more importantly, I thought, if I don't make it this far and make this impact, nothing had justified being away from my son. And every time I went to that place when, all of, when I lost all of that, it was, it was literally nothing justified then missing every soccer game on Saturday morning to do the radio show. So I, I beat myself up pretty good on that one. Yeah, and how did tough. you talk yourself out of beating like what was the way out of that hole the way out was to return back to reno so it was interesting i had an apartment here in new york we were working on um we were working on some other things i was doing a lot of touring in the day when you could do satellite media tours and so i was making a living probably making a living that most culinary spokespeople would have been thrilled about but given where i had hoped to be, it felt more like a failure. And I packed up the apartment. I'd been dividing my time between here and Reno. And I got a little place in Reno. And I started doing consulting. And I let Reno hire me, really heal me in, in a lot of ways. I needed to see that, honestly, I needed to see that impact comes in a lot of different ways. And when you inspire one person or you, or you help one person or the charity work I was doing there, I went on and I got on a lot of boards and took advantage of the celebrity I was there and worked with the governor's office on redevelopment and the food community. So I just let Reno help me heal. I have to go back to this notion of having really done it all right correctly. Mm -hmm. It feels that way to me. You know, you had put in the time, you put in the effort, you were super successful. Did you feel in looking back that you didn't do it all right? Like, did you leave something out? Did you go back and say, well, there's more than the food network. I mean, back at the time, there, it wasn't like there was ABC. I mean, you know, there was, there was PBS and food was, network. Right. Pretty, pretty much. much. Um, but did it make you reevaluate what doing everything right actually meant? I absolutely think so. I mean, I think that when you're – my son is, is incredible. He's 27. He's a golfer. And at the time, he was – you know, as he was growing up, he, it was all about golf. And I was, you know, devastated about this. And he was at school, you know, going to high school or whatever. And he sees me crying and he says – you know, you're so upset about this, but you know, I lost a tournament and I'm not upset. Like I can figure out how to, you know, bounce back from this. He goes, mom, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. He said, right now, you, you know, you really in the end of the day can only be good at two things. He said, really good at two things. He said, if you think about it, if you're, if you're out there doing five things, something is not as good as what you've placed as number in the number one position, Right. Only two things. He goes, for me, it's golf and grades. No girlfriend, <laughs> no, and he goes, he goes, for you, it's your work and me. Because at this point, as your son, and I'm in high school, like, this is when I need you the most. So forget about the dating, because I was divorced at the time. He's like, two things, mom. And right now, it's about work and me. So I, I really, here I am learning from my, you know, 14 or 15-year-old, took that to heart. 
And I think that, um, and I think that the pivot points and the learnings that came from that, um, I probably at the time was doing too much. Running the Culinary Center, I kind of had a what I thought was important in terms of I looked at a culinary career at that media level, almost like a like like bands that tour, where you've got to be great in the studio. So that was my camera work, right? You've got to be great on the road. They ha- You have to like be on the road and out promoting what you're doing. So I had all of these events. And then I, I looked at, so- at sort of like arms and legs, right? So so the culinary center had to be strong because because great chefs need an anchor. You need your your home place. And so I, I looked at it and I think in, in retrospect, it probably was just a lot. And I, and I think that that was probably, if it wasn't wearing actually physically on my face, it was probably wearing out there in the universe. And what would have come out of being successful like that would have meant I wasn't home for him in the golf and grade scenario. <laughs> I love golf and grades. I know. <laughs> I love the, the, the G that's missing is the girlfriend. I know. <laughs> no, not for now, mom. Not for now. <laughs> and it was hard. Kids are so wise. They're so wise. So you were healed with Reno and obviously, as you say, a star there. And there's so much impact you could bring. Really, yeah, there was no food community. There really weren't local foods. You know, I mean, it was it was a really important time for what ultimately would be this um I mean, it's still this growing culinary movement and the effect of Vegas, because Vegas, you know, I mean, they're kind of the ones I will never forget when I was nominated for my Beard Award. What made the cover of the local paper was Julian Serrano from from Picasso getting nominated, not me. So the thought that um, Reno or Tahoe, especially we think of Reno Tahoe, could have this impact that it's had today. Um, I loved having known it in the very beginning and supported those people. And so there was the the challenge around the Food Network, which really redirected you. And at this moment now when we're talking, you've um, sort of shape-shifted again. That's right. You're an incredible spokesperson representing um, sort of the, the future of food and what you perceive to be the future of food, which is extremely important to all of us. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't easy either. It seems like... You can tackle a topic, be really great at it, and yet it's hard to get people to pay attention. So can you talk about like your first steps in aqua aquaculture and um, what that was like trying to convince people that this was important to talk about? I mean, I, I do feel like I was very lucky in how I stumbled into it. I was on my last cookbook tour. So that kind of what I say is that front of the camera career. I could see anyway. And the reality is anyone who wants to do this, and we have a lot of people in our field that like have that goal, you you still to do what? To be on camera and to have sort of uh, this food is entertainment part of their career. And the reality is it's only one small piece of a career, right? Because the because the television show is it, it like we talked about the arms and the legs. It's it's a lot. And I was sort of beginning to accept that I needed to now figure out the next phase of my career. And I was, I had John Wiley, the cook, the kitchen coach series was three books. And how did you know it was time? Uh, I, you know what? I think, I think literally the, the fates said it to me because my agent at the time who was managing the tours had an opportunity to take on and bring to market what they thought was going to be the most sustainably raised salmon 
um, that had ever come to market. And they knew that I had been pounding the pavement. I mean, I was in Lynchburg, Virginia on the Heart of Virginia show shopping at Walmart for my cooking segments. I was in, you know, I was in Des Moines, Iowa. I was driving across Oklahoma. I mean, you know where these studios are, like people's basement studios where you're, you know, talking to some woman in a thick Southern accent about, you know, about, about food. And they got this sense that I could really tell them how America was eating and be able to start to shift the conversation around sustainable aquaculture. And they hired me. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. And it was sort of interesting, too, because at the time, so I had all these producer contra- contacts, right? I mean, I was in Indiana on Indianapolis TV. I was in Ohio on, you know, living living on Cleveland, living live with Cleveland. I mean, all this stuff. So for me, the culinary part to start with was easy. Build the website. Um, I was so lucky to work with a brand agency that was really keen on making sure the content looked good, which had never been done in aquaculture before. This was going to be the first first ever branded fish where just like you would walk up and say, I'd like, you know, Kleenex, like you, you, we buy by brand all the time. You were going to be able to do that with a fish. And they knew that was going to really be the anchor to people being able to trust where your fish comes from. Because in the past, in the fish and seafood case or on a menu, it just said species and country of origin. So we had to Which, have, as more. we know, is often false anyway. Yeah. Species completely false. Which is often. crazy to me. Well, because and country of origin, uh, like universally false. That's right. And so yeah. we we thought if it carried the brand name, then and it had the gill tag. There was never a gill tag program ever done before, where when the fish came in, it was tagged so it couldn't be switched out. Those were all things that I was bringing to it. Um, probably more on the consumer side because that was what I knew. You know, the, and without metrics, without technomics, without that, it was really for me. It was all about inbound marketing and and understanding who we are as culinarians and consumers, and applying that to the fish and seafood space. And that was ten years ago. I didn't realize it was quite so long, but it was hard to get people to listen. And how did you get people to listen to you? I mean, some of it was, I mean, we've been farming fish for thousands of years. So it was the acknowledgement that, yes, there had been bad farming, that let's there were about, bad actors in let's it. Let's talk about what it means to have been farming fish for thousands of years, because I listened yeah. to that and I'm like, well, it's not really what I perceive to be farming fish. Right, right. I mean, we were harvesting eggs um, in ponds. I mean, King Kamehameha was doing it on the island, on, on Kona, and raising them in, you know, ponds that they had created along um, ocean fjords in order to not have to go out and work so hard on <laughs> catching fish. I mean, it it's just like how they decided to grow wheat or grow corn and not have to forage. I mean, it, fish has been a part of that history for us for so long. And so that, you know, to me, we weren't telling the story of provenance like all the other, you know, pieces of food and beverage that we had learned to do so well in the rest of my career. So we were storytellers by nature. I mean, I had been the culinary spokesperson with Martha Holmberg for Fine Cooking Magazine. I mean, storytellers, right? What you were doing at Food & Wine Magazine. These are, you all were my mentors. I was learning through my media career. So when it came to fish, I just wanted to make sure that, that the fish could tell its story. And no one had done that. And I really used those brands, those stories of farmers on land um, and that we had been applying to reared parts of our food and beverage system and put it towards fish. 
That was the first. I I remember back in the day the idea of tagging the fish and being able to follow its entire journey. That's right. Um, so special, uh, particularly when we all began to focus on where our food came from, not just uh, you know the where what where the farm was. Let's say because that's mm-hmm. land based, but um, how is the farm being treated? You know, it's just. It's a very complex system. Well, we're Mm -hmm. going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about um, aquaculture and a lot of the things that I've learned from you and a lot of the things that you're really passionate about, Um, you know, cleaning up the oceans, uh, you know, protecting the future of food for all of us so that we all can, all 10 billion of us can eat. So stay with us for episode 100 with my... Well, you're not my 100th guest. You're my 100th plus plus guest, um, Jen Bushman. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, and a MacBook Pro running Pro Tools. You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass. That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718-362-3539. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan. And I'm going to say it again because it's really fun. On episode 100 uh, with my guest, Jen Bushman. And we're talking about fish fish and uh, more fish. So I initially, as I had said earlier in the show, thought aquaponics was just bad or, you know, being farmed in the ocean was bad that I've heard about the fish that escape and then, you know, they change the wildlife and I imagine I'm not alone. So tell me the storm that you enter when you're talking about fish and farming because there have been protests around farmed fish. There's very, very strong opinions on both sides. And you are right at the heart of it because you're trying to change people's minds. Pretty much every day. Every day. I mean, okay. I remember getting, you know, I'm just recently being back and forth with whoever does Richard Branson's social going, how can you possibly feel this way? We have this. What did they say? Uh, well, I mean, it. It so much of it comes from um, the lack of education and the fact that the way I the way I say it is that we literally right now have the chance to build a new part of our food system. We have not been able to do that for hundreds of years. So you think about we've been farming corn for how long? And then in the seventies, when we saw the sort of the Monsanto of the world come in, um, we embraced that large broad commodity aquaculture the more we farm the more we will be the better you know all of these modifications of seeds I mean all of that has come up really in somewhat recent history aquaculture at scale 
has only been around since the 1980s. And so the way I look at it is this. It's kind of like like our kids as teenagers, you know? They go out, they drink, they, they, you know, make all kinds of bad decisions. They go to college. They're probably having even more fun making bad decisions. And then you graduate. And you think, wow, you know what? I need to get a real job. I need to think about things a little bit more broadly. I need to maybe get, you know, think about getting a job, get married, maybe have children. You grow up. And aquaculture is in that phase where we've had a lot of bad things done on the water and on land. I mean, aquaculture is both land-based rearing of fish as well as in the ocean, um, what we call aquaculture or mariculture. And so, but the technologies and sort of necessity being the mother of invention are changing the world of well, sustainably reared fish. And the way- Can we just talk for a second about like, what were the bad things and then how do you avoid supporting the bad things because that's where mm-hmm. I fall right like I really want to avoid uh, shrimp from China mm-hmm. I want there's things that I want to avoid because I know they are like killing and polluting the oceans and if I put a fork in any piece of fish that I think has polluted you know a water like I, that would make me feel really bad so how do you recognize the things that are bad before let's get to all the good stuff. Well, I mean, 10 years ago, basically, um, when you followed uh, Seafood Watch, there was no, at the time, so we sort of, in farming, we follow some standards. And 10 years ago, a lot of those standards didn't exist. So when you look at, um, for example, raising salmon, open ocean net pen raising of salmon, Seafood Watch, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, which is probably for consumers especially the most important thing to follow. They have an app. You can type in the species, the country of origin. It tells you like a stoplight, red, yellow, or green. You know, red you never buy, yellow. It's probably a fishery or a farm that's in process. We can do better, but it's okay to support it. And green is, you know, you can eat it all day long. And and I can is tell you- Is there anything you, you can eat all day long? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What can you eat all day long? All day long, rockfish from off the coast from from off of the coast of California has been an unbelievably managed fishery. We have farms now. I mean, incredible farms that are raising fish that are green rated. So there's there's a trout company in um, Idaho that's raising trout that's green rated called Riverance. So I mean, we we have green, okay. which is sorry, good. I didn't no, mean to distract. Yeah, no, you. not at all. But, but I mean, yeah. that's the good news is right. supporting those doing it right, just like you would support your local organic farmer or or a rancher, you know, you, there are great examples, but where we were coming from 10 years ago, there was nothing. So basically it was all farmed ocean raised fish, red, no, no path to yellow or green. And these are scientific, you know, assessed organizations. You have to go through the reporting and they weren't even at the time willing to even assess you. So we sat there, the founders of Verlasso Salmon and I, having been hired by them, and we said, how are you going to incentivize these farmers to get it right when there's no path to green? Where's the pathway to green? And they changed the program at our at our request, we it took a long time. It took over a year, but they actually did it where they did a pilot program. John Ash, who's a who I know is a is a friend of yours as well. He was on the advisory board for Seafood Watch, and he really helped us get them to understand that they needed to start to consider how aquaculture fit in the landscape of assessment. The good news was after that, they gave us a list. I mean, we put the uh, World Wildlife Fund, uh, Oceana Environmental Defense Fund. We had ten 
NGOs that sat around a table and said, if you're going to get it right, these are the things you have to do. What were those things? I don't know that you can recall. Well, no, but no, no, but the hardest one I'll tell you was the feed model. You can't take ocean resources out of the ocean in an effort to feed something on a farm because the whales, the seals, all the marine mammals and the other life, the carnivorous fish need those anchovies, sardines, herring to be able to survive. And and we still are in a very difficult situation with this in the oceans. 90% of ocean stocks are depleted. They're, they're, either, they're, they're literally either overused or at the level uh, that we can actually pull them out of the ocean. And remember, this is the last wild frontier. So the fact that what the NGO said was figure out a different feed model, just like we can have, you know, um, uh, meatless Monday as humans, salmon and other carnivorous fish that you're raising, we can figure out different diets for them than giving them all feeder fish. Because at the time they would scoop up these feeder fish, grind it all up into fish meal and fish oil, put it in a pellet form like you would feed a fish in a fish tank. And that's how they fed the fish. Completely depletive. Um, uh, Verlasso, when they came to market, this is the, the salmon company that I was working for at the time, they had a feed model that they knew would hit that standard, which was for every pound of feeder fish you took out of the ocean, you had to bring a pound of salmon to the plate. And at the time, most of the farms were 10 to 1. 10 pounds of feeder fish to one pound of salmon. So the NGO said, look, you at least have to have an equal conversion. And then the rest is kind of easy. I don't want to say it's it's easy, but it's not hard. It's things like pen densities. Don't don't overcrowd the room. If there were 40 people in this studio where we are, we would get sick. Somebody has a cold, they're going to have to, you know, we're all going to get sick. But, you know, that but kind of thing. There's um, antibiotic issues, right? Like treating the fish and then those fish get out in the wild and that's a bad thing. Yeah, but I mean, there were, but you now there are great technologies around nets. So at the time, everybody was using copper netting. It was a, it's a paint that they put on the outside of the net called copper antifoulin. That keeps the algae from growing on the outside of the pen so that you can keep the pen cleaner. Well, that makes the outside environment, you know, copper, it, people, all of the animals, the sea life react to copper. So Verlasso came up with a patented net system that was a double net system that would not allow escapes. So you had no escapes. You had you didn't have the copper issue. They only put two fish in at the time. It was two fish for every cubic ton of water. Um, fallow, for goodness sake. Why? How can you think that anything, soil or water, can regenerate if you don't fallow? You know, put the farmers out there. What's you the know? fallow? So fallowing is leave the area alone after you've harvested. I see. So when when now in most aquaculture sustainable aquaculture, they fallow, meaning you move your farm to another little area where you have a license to farm and you leave that other area dormant to regenerate and replenish. But you don't have the kind of decimation of the bottom of the ocean floor, that kind of thing, if you don't have the densities. And um, what a, what a, so the illness within the pens it comes from too many fish in the pen. Too many fish in the pen. And uh, what about the pollution from the fish themselves, right? Like, 
I mean, the only now there are technologies. There are a number of concerns. One is the fish aren't eating the food you're putting into the pen, and it could it could float out, and then other sea life will eat that. We now have technology where it, there's sonar technology, so you can hear the fish eating and crunching. So you stop when you. St- stop hearing the crunching. There are camera systems underneath the water. So any sustainable aquaculture project you go to, you'll walk onto the houseboat. There are farmers that live right on boats, right in the fjords, and they're watching on cameras, and every pen has an underwater camera, and they know exactly what the fish is doing in real time. So that's important. So all of those pollution things that you're talking about, there are things we need. The NGOs said... You have to have proper site placement. So if we're talking about raising fish in the ocean and you go by a farm and there are no like waves in the water and choppiness and all that, you don't want that. You don't want to farm in a place that's not going to one. We say three buckets, good for the fish, good for the environment, good for you. So good for the fishes, they get exercise. They have to have enough room in the pen. And part of that exercise is the, what we call effluence, the water running through the pen. Um, one incredible farm called Pacifico Aquaculture, they're farming true striped bass off the coast of Ensenada. And the effluents do that. They're in a submarine channel, and they get fresh water through those pens every one and a half minutes. So there's no pollution. The water is crystal clear. We showed it in the film. That was very beautiful. And there, so let's talk about the protesters. I brought up a couple of issues. Mm. The NGOs brought up, obviously, other things that they were concerned about. What are those, like, the, I don't know if all the protesters were surfers, but, like, what were they objecting to that we haven't touched? Yeah, I mean, most of that is a NIMBY thing, so not in my backyard. Um, Surfers believe that nothing should touch the skyline and the horizon within which they're surfing, so there's a little bit of NIMBY in it. Um, Also, they think that somehow a farm is attracting more sharks, which is not the case. Sharks don't come closer into the shark issues they're having in some of the areas where they're surfing is not because of aquaculture. Um, The pollutants, uh, that type of thing is also a concern. And most of it is right now, again, nothing that we're talking about is supporting commodity aquaculture. And there are some bad things that are happening out there. But what we're talking about in a place like Isla Todos Santos, where Pacifico is farmed, that is near Jaws, which is the location of the big wave surf competition. And in our film, Jamie Mitchell had literally been boating past it for a decade and never saw that farm. So that's the ideal kind of literally like this this overlay of farmers, water farmers living in harmony with people and with nature. You see harbor seals, sea lions, the whales, dolphins all around this area. It's a it's an hour less than an hour off the coast of Ensenada, so you leave from the Ensenada Harbor. It's a bird sanctuary that's protected by the government is the island where they have their their uh, actual farmhouses on. The nets are out off of the coast of this island, but the surf have all been out there surfing for years on the other side of the island. That is aquaculture at its most perfect. <laughs> and the most beautiful fish. I mean, this for, for those of you, you know, that follow the food, you know, the chefs that are influencers, Rick Bayless in Chicago built his menu for Lena Brava around Pacifico striped bass, a tabla presentation of Pacifico striped bass. It was just on the menu at French Laundry and it's in Disney and other places. So it really truly is a fish for everybody. So, I think one of the, you started out when we were talking about uh, 
you know, how you can avoid the bad stuff. Um, seafood watches is, is one way. Is there, are there other ways? Because you can buy the fish that have names. So the Vergasa is a Pacifico. But a lot of us don't have access to that. That's right. And, and, and even going Whole to Foods doesn't market by, we talked about this when we were at South By, that, that Whole Foods says, well, we want to reserve the right to switch the fish around. Therefore, we don't need to market by the farm. And I, I want to walk in the produce department and go, Really? Really? You know, let's talk about the meat from the ranch that you have in the meat department. So I am not, that's one of those where I stand up whenever I can get in front of them and say, you're a really important thought leader. And pretty much when you go to a Whole Foods, they actually have stricter requirements. Um, In some cases, the water farmers are actually raising fish to a higher standard than Seafood Watch or the Aquaculture Stewardship Council or Best Aquaculture Practices for Whole Foods. So Carrie Brownstein, the director of sustainability for Whole Foods, has done an exceptional job. Um, But, you know, I I like to see them, I like to, when I'm going into um, a market or I'm going to a menu, it's mainly about asking questions. And that's really where we have to start is tell us where your fish came from. Because fish and seafood changes hands on average nine times. We have more slavery in fish and seafood than we do in any other system in the world. Um, And so we've got big issues as consumers that we need to support by just being thoughtful about where our food comes from. I mean, I don't want to be cynical, but everything that I've read tells me that you can ask the questions and that will, you know, raise the question in the mind of the people who are serving you, but they don't have the answers and they're, the answers are so often wrong. So it's totally true. It's just a, it's like if people keep asking and then, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we've been complacent. I think the interesting thing is this. If the oceans are the last wild frontier, why do you sit down at a restaurant and ask if the fish is farmed or wild when you don't expect the same out of your ribeye steak? I mean, we haven't been asking whether or not our cow was wild caught, I don't think ever. (laughs) So it's really amazing to me. Do you know that if we farm sustainably on water space, because the world is 71% water, so fresh and and salt water. If we farm on space the size of Lake Michigan sustainably, we don't have to pull any wild stocks out of the ocean ever again. So it's not to say we won't still be eating wild fish. We will be. But we can preserve it for, for people off the coast of Ecuador or Indonesia, people that need their fish like, the, like um, the, the Eskimos, the indigenous people of Alaska that need it literally because that's the only protein that they can provide their, their people. I feel like for us, from these industrialized nations, we have a responsibility to protect things above and beyond that. And we don't have a right to say, I want mahi-mahi on my menu here, and I'm going to take that indigenous, beautiful fish from the mouths of, of native Ecuadorians who deserve that fishery. So let's talk about the uh, water pollution, plastics. You are excited about what they're doing in Europe, and I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really excited about this because single-use plastic, I mean, we're getting closer and closer to the banning in Europe of all single-use plastic. Um, straws, really, I was one of the first people to jump on the bandwagon with straws, but it was never really about the straw. I mean, I hope everybody understands. It's like that was really about being aware of the plastic you use. So um, Plastic Free July is coming up. And so everybody can be out there like trying to use less plastic in their life, but try going out into the world and find a a tube of toothpaste and not use 
plastic. So it's, so we have to be more conscientious about this. The waters, we have a big issue. I mean, even if we want to keep raising fish in the ocean, the warmer the water gets, fish overall are in jeopardy. We won't be able to farm in that water either. So, you know, if you think there's abundancy, really at the end of the day, we're talking about needing these solutions in some ways are like looking in the rear view mirror. We're coming up with solutions that literally we've already passed, you know, the issue. And we need solutions that are looking down the road and around the bend because that's how fast the earth is changing. And that's what leads you to um, farms on land for fish? I mean, I think it's a couple of things. One is the NGOs are really keen on nothing touching the ocean. So that was a really easy thing to say was green right? Oh, go farm. We don't care if you're raising salmon. There's this great project in Wisconsin called Supreme Fresh where they're raising salmon in the middle of the state and they have a, and they're taking all of the water and putting it out into beautiful, um, they're raising fresh greens and hydroponics and all that. It's fabulous. But I'm like, wow, you know, in a day when we start to think about energy use as well as water use, I worry about whether or not if we're investing in these systems where we're artificially setting that system up. It's In my mind, it's like saying to someone they should be growing uh, almonds in the central California without the water. I mean, I, I, you know, and Corps of Engineers set that up how many, you know, decades ago. So it's like we have to be utilizing the best of resources where we are. And I and I think that, that recirculating aquaculture systems and pond systems for raising things like tilapia, they're going to be areas and environments on land where that's better. There's one in Costa Rica where they have a million and a half gallons of fresh water from the rainforest flow through the farm to then a rice pond, rain for, or rice paddy, rainforest, tilapia. That's amazing. But should we be looking at solutions like that in the middle of the Nevada desert? when we just get tax credits and energy credits and stuff? I don't think so. It's really complicated. It is a little bit. But here's what I love about it is, frankly, I like being a part of something that will be in your future. It's not going anywhere. So those days that I have trouble getting out of bed. Let's talk quickly about um, fake fish. Yes. So what do you think of like the tuna, sorry, the tomato Mm -hmm. that looks like a piece of tuna? Like, mm-hmm. where does that fall? I mean, that's one version of it, right? It's like vegetable seafood. Mm-hmm. And then there's another version, which is sort of like impossible means like you're trying to get to the mouthfeel and the flavor of fish, but it didn't, wasn't made with fish. Like, what, where do you fall on those things? I mean, I think that it's all going to be about balance. You know, I mean, I worked for a minute. I always say I worked for a minute on the Impossible Burger. I loved it, like in the early days with Pat and the team several years ago. So I love where these solutions are going, and I love the conversation they're generating. What we call in the industry the slack, meaning the loss on plant-based products right now is 70%. What does that mean? On average. It means we throw it away. So a, a retailer or a restaurant brings it in. They're throwing it away when they put it into the case. And so we have New Hope Shrimp and a number of others, the tuna. Um it will all fit into pieces of the puzzle. I think seganism, because we know dairy is so depletive, so being a vegan but also eating fresh fish and seafood is probably one of the most sustainable solutions because a full plant-based diet is, in some cases, depending on what you're bringing to the table, as, as depletive as some of our you know, other protein um, issues. I mean, not, not uh, when you take beef and pork and chicken, you know, kind of off the table. So it's going to be about like, for me, it's, it's a, a balance of eating wild fish, farmed, 
you know, that balance of what protein you'll demand. And then of course, you know, from where. I want you to teach me something. So at the end of the show, I have guests teach me something that really we should have an object in front of us, but you're prepared for this. What are you going to teach me? So what people don't know about my past as well was that I was a performer. I was a singer from when I was five all the way till I was um, in high school. And I was in the show choir that the show Glee was based on in Indiana. Okay, that's amazing. Is that cool? Yeah. And, um, and, and so as people orators, like orators like you are and myself, you know, I never thought that my, my singing career would have, you know, some sort of like after effect in what I'm doing now. But You're everything is connected. I can't sing, but okay. <laughs> no, we don't have to sing. Good. But I had this amazing voice instructor that, you know, talked about how you've got to breathe from the diaphragm, right? You have to breathe from below and, you are, and your voice has to be carried over the breath so that your voice doesn't get tired. So we would take a stack of books. So imagine we have books in front of us and we would lay on the floor and she would put that stack of books on my stomach and we would make that stack of books move as we breathed in and out. So we had great, not just great posture that was a result of that, not just great um, breathing, but also great stamina vocally, which um, I think for all of the public speaking and just being out championing with our loud, powerful voices that we need to feel the breath and feel that power. How long do you need to lie on the floor and have some books on your stomach? To do I, that? I think probably, you know, it's an exercise more of doing it more often than long. <laughs> so I think it's just getting used to it because then after a while, then you feel like you're naturally breathing that way and it will be actually better on your body because you'll have a more nutritive sort of breath. Do you still have lie down and do that? I do do that, and but I don't sing anymore, which is interesting. <laughs> I, I have to say with all the public speaking and you hear about these nodules on your vocal cords and stuff like that, so I can't, I mean, I can sing, but it's not like it used to be. So maybe you could sing the name of the woman you want to <laughs> shout out for uh, paying it forward. Is there a woman in this great hospitality world of ours you think doesn't get enough credit and you'd like to pay it for it right now. Absolutely. And this one's going to seem a little bit obscure, but I feel like with everything that we have going on now with the issues of immigration and what's happening in Mexico and our food supply, I mean, I, I want to shout, I want to do a shout out to a woman that's amazing. Her name is Joanna Lima. Lima. She works on the Pacifico Aquaculture Farm. She has raised three children, taught herself English. Her family has had a restaurant, worked in food, and now every day champions the story and brings people out to the farm and supporting this incredible group of ethical aquaculturists. So I'm going to, I'm going to champion Joanne Lima and um, tell her that we're, we're thinking about them and all of the, the work as we face our political sort of storm uh, with our Mexican neighbors. That's beautiful. And with that, it concludes episode 100 of Speaking Broadly. Jen, thank you so much for coming and joining me. If people want to uh, find out more about you, follow you or any of the great seafood that you represent and work for. Is that English? I'm not sure. Uh, where, where should they look? What should they follow? So follow Jennifer Bushman. Um, you can find that at jenniferbushman.com or you can go to any of the social media channels, Instagram, and, and start following. I'm always out there talking about fishy stuff. <laughs> and you guys know where to find me uh, at Speaking Broadly. Thanks so much for listening. I want to thank... Uh, this is like my, you know, the weepy moment of thanking Heritage. Just want to thank the whole Heritage team for having made it up to 100 episodes of Speaking Broadly. Um, 
Katie and Kat and Matt and Nina and Sophia and Carlin and there's and Hannah. There's so many more people who make this the most incredible um, radio network to work with. And I have the privilege of um, sharing my voice here. So thank you guys. And as they say, as the cliche, looking forward to the next 100. <laughs> have a great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.